This is Channel 253. In this episode of Nerd Farmer. I will say that uh, some of the same people who are very upset about the uh, influence of critical race theory or the ideas that people are connecting to critical race theory in schools uh, were not especially loud about condemning uh, things like teachers holding mock slave auctions. Did you know Channel 253 is member-supported? I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I hope you will show your support by going to channel253.com slash membership and join. Thank you. This is the Nerd Farmer Podcast, a national conversation through a local lens. Welcome to the Nerd Farmer Podcast, brought to you by Libro FM. My name is Nate, and I'm your host, an American teacher in Tacoma, Washington, in the Mouillard Studios. Um, everywhere that I look right now, this is like the summer of the critical race theory conversation. And it's interesting to me because this is something I view as a contrived political moral panic, but other folks view as like the crisis of the moment. Uh, over this week, yesterday, I sat in People's Park on MLK and talked to a reporter from the Seattle Times and helped her with her research for a story that she's going to be putting out about CRT. Uh, earlier in the week, I spoke to Chase Hutchison, who's going to be appearing on an upcoming episode of Crossing Division with Evelyn talking about CRT panic here locally. There are three candidates for the school board in Peninsula schools who are very concerned about kids in Gig Harbor getting indoctrinated by critical race theory. And I, I, I wish that folks who – if folks who are not local are listening, like Gig Harbor is like the – whitiest McWhite suburb of Tacoma, where there's like literally a bridge and a body of water between us. And the idea that CRT is running rampant there is preposterous. Anyway, in today's conversation, uh, I have a national reporter. His name is Andrew Ujafusa, and he is a reporter for Ed Week, and he's been covering this topic of CRT uh, from both the political lens and the Ed lens. And he wrote a piece recently that compared the current moral panic over CRT to the past conservative moral panic over Common Core. And it is a piece that I think is worth your reading, and I'm going to make sure it's in the show notes, but uh, I want to welcome him to the conversation. So, Andrew, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Nate. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. So, Andrew, I always enjoy talking to reporters. And one thing I think is useful is to kind of orient people to, like, your reporter story. So uh, how long have you been at Ed Week? And what's, like, your reporter background, your reporter story? Sure. So I've been at Ed Week since 2012, which I think by uh, journalism standards is, is a long time. Um and before that, I worked at local newspapers in Maryland and Mississippi, and I was also a, a high school English teacher in Japan. So uh, I've had a, a decent range of experiences, I guess you could say. And, and at Ed Week, I mostly focus on uh, federal policy um, around things like funding, accountability, testing. Um, but I also cover uh, national politics, which is uh, what led me to um, write you know, recent stories about critical race theory. It's sort of a, a difficult topic to avoid um, lately, even if you want to, but I, I do think it's it's worth education reporters grappling with, obviously, from, from different perspectives. 
It's interesting to hear you say it's a difficult topic to avoid because part of me wonders if by having these conversations and doing the work that I'm doing, if I'm not bringing more attention to a contrived moral panic. But then the other part of me says I'd rather have people hear from me than hear from somebody else who maybe isn't as informed, doesn't share my worldview. So it was interesting to hear you say that point. If you've been at Ed Week since 2012, that means you were around for the Common Core fights. And we'll circle back to that in a bit. Uh, I'm just curious. Like, I don't know how assignments work in the newsroom. How did this report or how did this story or issue or topic come onto your radar and, like, become your beat for the moment? So lots of people uh, in the Ed Week newsroom are, are doing great work covering um, critical race theory. And, you know, to your point about avoiding a topic or grappling with it, I, I I do think it's important in, in many circumstances to grapple with it, to explain things, to, to present different perspectives and, and different um, pieces of information to people um, to help them in their judgments. Um, you know, it's sort of the best we can do uh, under normal circumstances is do that for people as a public service. But as I was saying, you know, I, I wrote a story in May um, sort of interrogating the idea of um, the uh, discussion or division or strife over critical race theory as, as just another entry in the cultural wars and how they impact schools. I sort of wanted to get at the idea, how is critical race theory different uh, as well as similar to um, things like controversy over teaching sex education, ebonics, uh, the theory of evolution and things like that. And as I wrote that story, I don't know if it was deliberate or not, but, but I didn't include the common core um, in part, maybe because Common Core, um, you know, was was the most recent um, education issue that sort of achieved national political liftoff, for better or for worse. Um, and you know, I'm sort of leaving the pandemic out in part because we're still in the pandemic, and and I think with Common Core, we have a bit more distance from the big controversy around it. So, uh, it, whether unconsciously or or otherwise, I left it out, and I thought afterwards, well, maybe that's worth a separate story um, to, to create sort of a Venn diagram, a political Venn diagram saying, okay, let's look at the, the politics around these two issues and see where there's overlap and, and uh, where there are differences. So that was sort of the, the genesis in my head uh, for the story. And I pitched it and the editors said, go do it. For folks who don't follow education stuff as thoroughly as you and I do, could you explain just for their benefit, like in uh, simple terms, what was or is Common Core? Sure. So the Common Core state standards um, is basically a set of um, guideposts um, for English language arts and mathematics, sort of um, outlining and detailing um, and sequencing what, sh what students should know and when they should know it. Um, the first uh, point to make uh, as I say that is to say that that's not the same as curriculum. As you know better than me being a teacher, curriculum is, you know, okay, how do you get students to learn that stuff? How do you get them to understand different concepts? And a lot of that is under the control of the teacher. Um, but, you know, these state standards, these sort of guideposts for English and, and math were uh, adopted um, by the vast majority of states um, almost a dozen years ago now. Um, they were not a federal initiative, um, but they were supported by the Obama administration. They sort of pushed states in different ways to adopt them. Um, and so, yeah, that's a basic explanation of the Common Core and, and the politics that followed got, got very interesting uh, in different ways, I will say. Um, 
but yeah, the, the Common Core, um, as I say, was um, for various reasons achieved a kind of escape velocity in, in politics. I, I, it's hard to say right now, maybe not to the extent that critical race theory um, has achieved or, or will achieve, um, but, but conversations around Common Core, especially in the education community, got, got pretty intense. Yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned like that it it reached escape velocity, but not as hot as Common Core. And one of the elements I think in there is like the issue of race. And that's why this moral panic about uh, critical race theory reminds me of the Ebonics controversy back in the 90s when teachers in Oakland were basically acknowledging that African-American vernacular English is a – a language or a dialect of English and then recognizing that like students came with that asset. And then the version of that, that the media, particularly conservative media said is that teachers are teaching white kids in Oakland Ebonics and they're not learning English. And so it's very interesting to me, the kind of echo chamber distortion that things like this go through. Uh, Who have you interviewed so far about this and what have you learned from them? Um, Sure. I I should just clarify, um, based on something you said just now, that I I think that in some respects, um, maybe in key respects, I think the debate over critical race theory has gotten hotter, more controversial than the Common Core. I think Mm -hmm. maybe you said it was the reverse. Um, But but just to clarify, I think in some ways what's going on right now is is more divisive. Well, I agree. Um, I, I may have misspoke. So, 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 so apologies. I, I may have misspoke, but I agree. Yeah, no, no. I, I, I just, I just wanted to make sure that that was as clear. Yeah. I, I, I think um, j- just making a hundred percent sure. So, back to your question about who I interviewed. Um, you know, uh, some of it was just going back to folks who I had talked to who had sort of lived through, may, maybe have gotten a few gray hairs from the from the Common Core debate. Uh, folks I, I knew, and you know, having relationships that you that you built um, over over that time and, and sort of having that trust with folks um, that dates back years, even if you haven't talked to them for a while. I think that's important for reporters. Um, I talked to conservatives, um, some of whom dislike both the Common Core and sort of the concepts around and connected to critical race theory as well as CRT itself, um, as well as, you know, I talked to one conservative who thought the Common Core is pretty good. Um, but doesn't like how he sees CRT influencing schools. Um, you know, and I, I spoke with education historians um, who I think, you know, I, I love talking to those folks because um, it, it really helps put things in context. And um, just because something is uh, tagged as ahistorical doesn't mean it can't happen, that it's impossible. But if you talk to folks, um, you know, about these issues, they, they tend to, show you connections and, and common themes, which I think is really important. And I spoke with educators. And I think, ironically, in some respects, I think those folks can be forgotten uh, when these conversations, again, achieve sort of national political um, status. And, you know, a, a big part of our audience at Week is educators, and uh, they don't necessarily have uh, the biggest megaphone in a lot of this stuff. And so part of my job is to, um, this is a bit simplistic, but to say, here's a megaphone. You're in the classroom. You're in the district. Tell me what you're hearing. And, and a lot of times, uh, you know, they will not engage in sloganeering or things like that. They, they will, I think educators' opinions about this are more nuanced than some people think or would like people to believe. Um, so talking to educators, I think, is, is 
as you know, many reporters have done, but um, I think that's an especially important part of it for me and, and, and highlighting uh, ways in which I talk to them, I, I think is important. I'm curious about a couple of things you said there. Uh, thing one, I wonder, so you, you said you spoke to some conservative people. Was, did you hear something different from conservatives who are like serving in office versus folks who are just like conservatives kind of writ large? Because something that I find is, is that the people who are in office seem to have a different approach to these culture war uh, debates that we're seeing right now. And so I'm just wondering, like the folks we're speaking to, were they like current office holders or like folks in like the thinking consigliere? No, I, I think people, the people I spoke to um, about the issue were mostly sort of um, in the, um, I guess I could say the conservative think tanks and people in that sort of okay. realm. Um, you know, I've, I've listened to what um, Republican and conservative office holders uh, have said about the topic, uh, especially inside the Beltway. Um, and, you know, I, I think there is, um, I, I want to be fair here, I, I think there is some um, nuance to what they're saying if you talk to some of them. Um, I think office holders either don't know about or disregard that nuance, especially when they know they're talking to a, an audience or to reporters. Um, you know, and I, I think that there is some, if you talk to some people who might identify as conservative, there, there's some discomfort um, with some of these quote unquote critical race theory bills that, that several states have adopted in terms of, you know, I've seen an interesting division, for example, between, you know, um, the bills um, that bar uh, sort of lean towards more barring discussion of topics versus um, compelling students, um, you know, to say certain things or to do certain things. I think some folks have highlighted what they see as important differences between those those two things. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, the folks I've talked to in, on sort of the conservative side of things have mostly been um, not government officials um, and not all the discomfort with stuff related to critical race theory comes from um, conservatives. I think there are folks who might identify as center left or sure. liberals might have discomfort. But as you know, Nate, when it comes to official action that officials are, are taking against um, critical race theory, uh, it's overwhelmingly from Republicans and conservatives in states as well as in Washington. Did you have any aha moments in conversations you had with people or uh, did anybody provide a framing to you that was particularly illuminating uh, about this issue? That's a great question, Nate. Um, I think that a story like this is, um, and this may sound like I'm dodging your question, but it's not. <laughs> it's okay. I, 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 think, I think this is an iterative process and you have to, as I said earlier, it's important to incorporate different perspectives and not just sort of for a political story like, oh, left and right. I think there are different nuances. And I, I think that, um, I think different things that people said to me um, were um, aha moments in, in different ways. And I think you try and meld those together. I think um, this is maybe a bit melodramatic, but I think if you just have one aha moment, you, you, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but you can it can also sort of push your story too far in one direction or another. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is such a this is not some sort of technical, very narrow subject. This is a as I wrote in the story, this is something this deals with issues that are so um, profound and personal to so many people. 
um, and, and the different range of experiences they have can influence how they feel about this topic in all kinds of ways. And in ways that I, as a reporter and someone with my own background, I, I can't conceive of or don't conceive of or have partial conceptions of. And so I think that, that having several smaller aha moments for me was helpful. I didn't really have what a sort of one sort of finger snapping. That's it. That's going to drive the whole story. Um, so again, I hope that doesn't sound like a dodge, but, but that, it, that is how it came out. It does, but, <laughs> it does, but I'm going to follow up a little bit. So would, would you mind sharing a, what a couple of those like partial aha moments were? Cause so, so for me, I have been looking at this kind of through three lenses. So one of the aha moments that I had was looking at the Supreme court case Epperson versus Arkansas, which has to do with teaching of evolution. And I thought it was really interesting to like read this language from the court, the state's undoubted right to prescribe the curriculum for its public schools does not carry with it the right to prohibit on pain of criminal penalty the teaching of a scientific theory or doctrine where that prohibition is based upon reasons that violate the First Amendment. And so for me, that was a huge like aha that like we've been here before and that this is actually not a new fight. We went through this fight over the teaching of evolution. I guess what's striking for me is, is that like I don't believe that the vast majority of things that are being called critical race theory in schools are actually critical race theory. And so Essentially, we have an example of where the court has codified in law that there are rights to teacher speech and that they shouldn't be limited. And then we have efforts to block teacher speech that are blocking a thing that's not happening. And for me, that's been really frustrating to articulate to people, but I think I just did it to the audience. So anyway, that's kind of my epiphany I've had. Uh, what have been some of your many epiphanies? I can pick out a few from, from the story. Uh, so I was... Um, talking with a woman named Sandy Boy, who you know, right? Yep, absolutely. And she was talking to me about how a lot of the controversy right now is, is um, taking place in Virginia, Northern Virginia, um, where there's sort of a mix of different political sensibilities. Um, and it's viewed as sort of a suburban political battleground. And I, I had sort of vaguely thought of this, but she really crystallized it for me when she said, Look, you know, Virginia is, Northern Virginia is right next door to the Beltway where you have a huge class of people whose profession is politics. Mm. And Republicans are trying to figure out how to um, do well in the midterm elections. Virginia has off-year elections, meaning uh, their statewide elections are this year. So this is an excellent probing ground to see if um, Republicans can use um issues associated with critical race theory, critical race theory itself as a as an issue to get votes, especially among the type of suburban voters who both Republicans and Democrats cave, uh, crave, excuse me, not cave. Maybe they cave to some of those voters sometimes. <laughs> sure. Those those are the voters they crave, right? Uh, and so I said that that strikes me as some as one of the things driving this. Right, it, it, it's it's a coherent uh, idea, and I think that's very uh, it's not the only reason I think it's happening there, but I, it, it does seem to me like a driving factor. And then Republicans in Congress haven't been shy about it. There've been uh, messages saying, "Hey, yeah, use this issue, take it, run with it, see where it goes." Um, and I was talking with separately. I was talking with Jason Glass, who's Kentucky's education commissioner. He's been dealing with this a lot recently, and you know. Jason um, has worked as Iowa State Education Chief previously. He worked in Colorado. So he, he 
is able to understand uh, different political sensibilities. And he said to me, and I, I, I think he said it just a few days after our interview as well, he said, look, it's not our job to be um, the sort of legal defense team for critical race theory. That's not why we're here. Um, but here's what we are defending, um, you know, how we approach equity and including a focus on racial equity. And so that reminded me of uh, something that uh, National School Board Association staffer said to me, which is like, it, it's helpful for schools in this context to delineate what they're not doing as well as what they're doing, mm. right? Using that, going into that negative space and saying, no, nope, not doing that, not doing this, as well as saying, here's what we are doing. Um, how helpful that is, um, I don't know. It depends on the local context, but I, I do think that was a, a moment for me where I said, um, I imagine a lot of folks working in education will, will see that or read that and say, okay, that that makes sense to me. That's sort of how I view what I'm doing. Like, I don't really care about defending critical race theory per se, but I do care about like talk about how I'm trying to um, focus on students of color, disadvantaged students and things like that. That's interesting. I actually want to bring up that point after the break. So we'll take a break here. And when we come back, I want to talk about how the people who are advocating against critical race theory oftentimes are actually targeting uh, what is considered to be anti-racist teaching and how they're doing that kind of linguistic uh, tete-a-tete. So we'll be back. This episode of the Nerd Farmer podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro FM is a seller of audiobooks and is my choice, uh, my bookseller of choice. What I love about Libro is, is if you buy a book from Libro, uh, you can share a portion of the proceeds with your local bookstore. And so, for example, when I buy a book, it benefits King's Books in Tacoma. Um, I want to share a few of the topics and a few of the titles I listened to recently, and maybe you might want to check them out. Uh, the first one is a book called Sky Hunter by Marie Lu. Marie Lu is a young adult sci-fi writer. I first fell in love with her writing when she wrote the Young Elites trilogy. Uh, the bumper sticker on the Young Elites is, is imagine the X-Men being created during the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, sounds dope. Uh, the next one I want to recommend is called 400 Souls. It's a collection of essays that is edited by Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, essentially, each one of these essays in the book is telling the story of Black America one year at a time. And so it starts with 1619 and then walks through the history of Black America uh, and some of the some of the, the, the things that Black Americans have had to co overcome. It's frankly a sobering book and a dark book. Uh, there are a couple times where like, I was like, I'm, I can't mess with this right now. and had to, walk, had to walk away from it. But like, that's also the history of Black America. Uh, the last book I want to recommend today is called Chlorine Sky. It's written by a writer named Mahogany L. Brown. And essentially, it is a book written in verse that tells the story of a young woman who basically is in love with hip-hop and basketball. If you've ever read the book uh, by Sandra Cisneros, uh, The House on Mango Street, imagine The House on Mango Street updated for today and centered on hip-hop culture. So if any of those sound great to you, go to LibroFM.com. If you sign up for an account and use promo code Tacoma, you will get one free book, your first book free, and then your ongoing membership will be $14.99 a month. Again, Libro FM using promo code Tacoma. All right, back to the show. And we're back. Thank you so much for downloading the show today. You have a choice to what you listen to every other Monday, and I thank you for listening to this show. This is a production of Channel 253. We are a network of podcasts with roots in Abu Dhabi and here in Tacoma, telling stories, elevating voices and perspectives, and having in-depth conversations. I think that what we do is good radio.
And I think that if you agree with me, there's a couple of ways that you can help the show. Uh, thing one is jump on iTunes or whatever podcast mechanism you use to listen to the show. And if you can, write a review. Uh, thing two is if you want to support the show financially, you can join Channel 253. That's a network of podcasts based here in Tacoma, telling stories, elevating voices. And if you join, you get memorable benefits, including access to Doug's show, which is called Off the Record, uh, conversations that are too spicy and too rich for the normal shows with the hosts. I heard Taco Man. Whoa, did you? I, that was that was bizarre. I, I think Taco, there was a specter over your shoulder. Taco Man just made his return to Tacoma from the Fortress of Taco Two to have a wow. Okay, um, I've never had somebody run the studio before. Uh, and then also, uh, if, as a member, you get access to our memory Slack, where there's conversations happening every day about topics like this. And in fact, there's a conversation happening right now in the memory Slack about critical race theory in Peninsula schools. And so, if you want to support the show. Channel253.com slash membership. It's $4 a month or $40 a year. Also, whenever I have on reporters, I always want to say how important their work is. And so if you're enjoying this conversation, if you enjoy Andrew's reporting, think about how you can support Edweek. Uh, Edweek has, they've offered their platform to me. I've blogged for them before, and they do really good reporting on case 12 issues. And whether we realize it or not, what happens in the schools impacts all society. And so think about that too as well. All right, Andrew, welcome back. Thanks, Nick. Um, I'm curious. Something that I've seen happen is is that I feel like the people who are most vociferously against critical race theory actually aren't talking about critical race theory being taught in schools because the average K-12 teacher doesn't even know what the F critical race theory is. What they're really doing is, is they're talking about anti-racist teaching and anti-racist pedagogies. And so let me start with that question. Is that something that you're seeing as well? Does that belief of mine sound unfounded to you? So what I'll say is that I think that what started out as sort of a narrow, relatively narrow discussion about critical race theory in schools, like a nominal discussion about that, has really mushroomed into a debate about um, all of the things in education and schools that are... Um, you know, that some people um, are connecting to concepts like critical race theory, um, things that are being conflated with crit critical race theory. Um, I do think that the discussion has sort of evolved, so to speak, that way. Um, and, you know, I, I, I will say that I, I think that, um, you know, it, it's fair to have um, um, it's fair to have debates about, you know, like how do we achieve equity? What does equity mean to different groups of people? Um, and, you know, when it comes to um, issues like in history class, how do you talk about these things? How do you get students to understand? There are well-meaning people who can do that work badly um, or clumsily in, in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? No, no one is no one is automatically immune from that, right? Um, but I, I do think that um, to try and bring it back to the more closely to what you asked, I do think that some of this is, is, has been used as a jumping off point, rightly or wrongly, to, to interrogate or criticize or attack or try to undermine um, the various ways in which educators um, address inequities, including those dealing with race, as well as, uh, how schools address sexism and LGBTQ issues. So yeah, the discussion has gotten 
pretty broad relatively quickly, I think. Yeah. And so what I'm seeing happen, and, and so for the record, Andrew is a reporter. He does not offer his opinions very often. He's doing the just the facts kind of thing. It's not what I'm paid to do. I'm right. <laughs> trying to stick to that. So I'm the opinion guy. And so what, what I'm seeing happen is, is that diversity, equity, and inclusion has taken root in schools. Anti-racism has taken root in many classrooms. If you come out and say that I am anti-diversity, equity, and inclusion, you're basically saying that I'm pro-inequality. And if you come out and say that I'm anti, I'm anti-anti-racist, the opposite of anti-anti-racist is either racist or pro-racist. So instead of saying I'm pro-racist or I'm just racist or I'm anti-equity, they're basically conflating these things into this CRT boogeyman they've created. And then they say, I'm anti-CRT, not I'm pro-racist. That's how I'm observing things. Those aren't your words. You don't have to, I don't want to get you fired or we're fired, we're good. I'm no, I, 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 I understand what you're saying. And I, I do think that um, th this ties into um, things that are outside of the school realm, um, you know, and sort of who, as you know, a lot of this deals with sort of different perceptions among different people of who has the power. Um, you know, if, if you're, uh, let's put it in, in relatively simplistic political terms, a lot of people in, if you're a Trump voter in rural America, um, you might look at power, cultural power centers in Los Angeles, New York, university and say, these people have the power. And they're driving things in a direction I don't like. And, and people in those big cities and cultural institutions that are very high profile, the type of people who get quoted in newspapers, they might look at so-called Trump country and say, well, those, those people have the power in America. And I don't like that. And so I think that sort of division trickles down into all sorts of areas. And I think this is one of them where I think from a conservative perspective, they look at various ideas from higher education, from, from academia, mm -hmm. uh, that they think uh, in various ways are influencing how educators deal with issues and specifically race. Now, I will say that uh, some of the same people who are very upset about the uh, influence of critical race theory or the, the ideas that people are connecting to critical race theory in schools uh, were not especially loud about condemning uh, things like um, teachers holding mock slave auctions uh, in their classes. Uh, so, you know, I, I do think that when you condemn one extreme or one practice that many people would find reprehensible or problematic, but not the other, um, I think that's where politics gets involved and your cultural predilections get involved. And I think that's, that's an issue where um, I know both sides is not a, very in vogue term these days, but I think that's where both sides can be interrogated. And I, I do think, um, I do think conservatives who are, um, you know, raising uh, issues or problems with this should be asked about that as well. And and it also the current situation also also shows the power of sort of the isolated incident or or, or what's going on in one school district or five or ten can suddenly come to represent the whole country. Again, fairly or not, um, but you know, stories are stories in politics are powerful, even if they're just a story from one teacher or one school district. Uh, this is probably the first question I should have asked, but I'm just I'm going to just pose it really fast. Uh, based on your reporting and research and talking to experts, 
Uh, how do you understand, how do you define the term critical race theory? Like, what does it mean to you? Well, first I should say, it's a good question. First I should say that I, I do not want to pose as some sort of academic expert on, sure. on critical race theory. Um, you know, just so your listeners are aware of that, <laughs> if they didn't assume it already. But so, you know, I, I would I, I would use the definition that my colleague Steve Sawchuk used in his um I guess explainer to use the journalism term of critical race theory, which by the way, his his article laying all this stuff out is the I believe is the most read thing that Education Week has ever published. Uh it's if it's not uh the most read, it's it's up there. It's gotten incredible uh traction. Um but my understanding from from his article is that it is it is the concept that racism is not just product uh, or, or displayed in individual prejudice or biases or, or things like that, that it is embedded um, in systems um, and in law, and it is a social construct um, and not just something that one person, um, you know, holds in their heart or whatever. And so um, you, you, you look at something like um, redlining, uh, which some of your listeners, many of them may be familiar with about, you know, uh, drawing lines around a neighborhood with a lot of um, black people in it, and then saying, well, we're not going to make home loans to them. Um, you know, we're going to freeze them out of the housing market, basically. Um, so that is a concept where you say, well, that's something that critical race theory, that's something that it deals with, um, that it's something embedded in, in this case, the financial system or the banking system. So that's, um, you know, to some people, that's hardly a controversial proposition at all. And to some people, um, I think they have difficulty making um, the um, leap or the transition between racism as a result of individual prejudice and something that's embedded in essentially American society because the implications of the latter are profound mm. uh, and, and uh, disturbing. And so, um, it's it's a it's a difficult division to bridge. If it weren't, I don't think we'd be having this conversation, or we wouldn't be in the middle of this uh, controversy. Yeah. Well, and this is why the language being propagated in legislation is so dangerous, because you set up this thing where you say you cannot teach critical race theory, which is a fairly complex legal theory that you explained, I think, you know, fairly well for a layman, right? Like as well as like I can explain it. Um, or things related to it, but hold on, because all sorts of things related to it. So, like, does that mean that I cannot talk about the Constitution because the Constitution contains a three-fifths clause? Does that mean I can't talk about – and so this, is this for me, is the part that I think is missing in the dialogue about the critical race theory is the, like, chilling impact this has on teacher speech. And so, like, to be clear – Teachers in Washington state live in a blue state. They live in a highly unionized state. They have due process protections that are very, very generous is the wrong word, but are, but, but are, but are strong. Uh, but not all teachers benefit from that. And so I wonder, in your research, have you heard from educators talking about this and framing this around an idea of being like a threat to their speech? I, I think that fear exists. I haven't personally reported on that issue a great deal, although I think it is one of the most pertinent issues facing educators in those states um, where this is now essentially part of the statute going forward. Um, 
I do think that there's a sort of, uh, I don't want to call it a consensus, but, but there is a feeling that there is a legal distinction between people who work in higher education, colleges and universities, and the, and the academic freedom um, uh, that they enjoy, that that is distinct and, and that is more uh, legally uh, sacrosanct, shall we say, or more of a sound legal concept than the idea um, that teachers in K-12 have the same kind of academic freedom. Um, again, I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but I know I know we've reported on that, and I think that there is a difference where K-12 teachers don't have that same kind of protection. Now, um, you may have seen that um, teachers' unions are interested in um, assisting teachers who feel as if going forward they might be sort of targeted or censored in this way. Um, and I think that it seems relatively obvious that we're going to have courtroom battles about this, um, how exactly those will turn out. Uh, we don't know, of course, but uh, it's easy to envision a situation where you have someone who becomes a sort of uh, symbol or an icon of this sort of thing, however it goes, like, you know, uh, Mary Beth Tinker, uh, many decades ago, uh, became a symbol um, for, you know, issues around student speech rights through protests in the Vietnam War, um, as well as, and I apologize, I'm forgetting his name, uh, kid um, who wore a bong hits for Jesus shirt, <laughs> uh, raised similar I love that case. Uh, student speech <laughs> issues. So, these, these people become legal symbols, but cultural symbols too. Um, the, the Dover School District in Pennsylvania became a symbol, an icon of fights about teaching evolution. Those things are important. And the, maybe the best example is the Scopes Monkey Trial um, from almost 100 years ago uh, in, in, uh, in Tennessee. So um, how... This is going to play out legally. It's going to be fascinating to watch. Yeah. By the way, uh, shouts to you for bringing up the Bong Hits for Jesus trial. Uh, the other case I was thinking about is Bethel versus Frazier, which is a local connection. That was back in the 80s. And so Bethel School District is south of Tacoma. And there was a Supreme Court case around student speech there. Um, so you have talked to experts. You have reported and written paper, written uh, articles about this. Um Two questions. So one, what has the response been from readers? Like who is told or like have you been told this is a really great job or oh, shove it, you bum. And then also like what are you still curious about? To answer your first question, I've, I've gotten mixed responses. Um, someone accused me of bloviating, which, <laughs> you know, is a $2 word. So if you're going to use it, okay, not bad. I've gotten some some good responses from people who have been through the the, the Common Core Wars, uh, for example. Um, I, I know reporters who have gotten much worse in response. I, I, I have to say, I, I, I find that, there, and I, I could be entirely mistaken, but part of me believes that there are people who believe that they're not only entitled to use abusive language and very crude and demeaning insults when responding to stories and to reporters about this, but that, that, but that it's necessary, right? That, that they feel they have to speak that way mm -hmm. uh, to, to members of the media when they're talking about this. Uh, of course, it's their right, but 
when you do that, it reveals nothing about the subject of the reporter. It reveals a great deal about you. Uh, that's how I feel about it. But you know, I, I I try not to get too much into into litigating or wading into response, negative responses, especially um, to to my work on this stuff. I know it's controversial, uh, as I think Abraham Lincoln said, trying to deal with stuff that way is it's like trying to shovel fleas across a barnyard. Right? It, it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, to answer your second question, um, I, I'm obviously curious as to where where this goes uh, politically, like you know, at the most sort of tactical lizard brain level. Right? Is is this a, is this a cultural wedge issue where Republicans are going to have success? They're the ones driving it, talking about it, highlighting examples of things they find uh, hurtful or offensive. Um, there is a political element to it. It's not all of it, but let's see where it goes. Let's see how successful it is. I, I think. Perhaps the more interesting thing, a more relevant thing, however, is, is how this affects, and you alluded to this just a moment ago, is, is classroom practice. Mm. It's something that's very hard to um, track because, as you know, we have over 13,000 school districts in this country. Uh, we have very fragmented decisions about uh, curriculum. Uh, we have individual teachers who are making curricular decisions on their own and not necessarily force-fed 100% of it through some sort of state mandate, right? Nate, as you know. Uh, so how will this affect either proactively or passively um, affect their decisions about how they deal with this stuff? Now, um, you know, it's not as if this these sorts of laws have been adopted in all 50 states, but this is now a national issue and, and teachers, even in states that aren't directly affected by legislation, they read about it, they talk to colleagues in, in other places, uh, as I'm sure you do. How, how will, how will, what will they take away from those conversations? So I'm really interested to, to see that. That is a very difficult thing um, to write about. I, I think a lot of people, regardless of party or clique or whatever, don't, don't have a, a detailed understanding about how school systems work in America, um, and this is something where it's relatively difficult to see the impact. And of course, it might take a long time before we see sort of the impact. And who knows what will happen next year <laughs> in in state legislatures? So that's something to watch too. Yeah, evidence of that point you're making about where does go next is is that as of last night, as of our recording, uh, folks on the right wing are now calling for cameras in every classroom to make sure that critical race theory is not being taught. And this is something that, like, if you think through for more than 15 seconds, you can see the holes in this. Do you want every parent in your kid's class to be able to see your child while they're in class? Who is going to maintain these these records? Where is the camera going to be positioned? Is it going to be like a teacher body camera? Like, what is the cost? Like, there's so many... There's so many things being thrown out in this moment because it is elementary, like a, a panic that like the, the, the common sense and the practicality and the, the, the details that practitioners are, there's so many just bad ideas being thrown out with so much bad faith that well, unfortunately something's going to stick. Well, so I, I will say that, and I, I, you know, I've seen that idea about classrooms and, and uh, cameras in classrooms, excuse me, come up uh, in one or two places in, in national media. And, you know, I was thinking last night about, well, this is not a new idea per se. You know, several years ago, Texas 
uh, pass a law saying in certain classrooms, um, there can be video and audio surveillance at the request of parents or the teacher, um, certain staff. Um, now that's in a specific context of special education. How widespread that is in Texas, I, I admit I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, this has been an issue um, that's come up uh, for many years with respect to everything from security to teacher evaluations, right? But but more broadly, I, I do think um, you're right that that um, there are all kinds of ideas that can be spun off of this of, of varying coherence and quality. Uh, and, you know, I, how many legislators who supported anti-critical race theory bills will support cameras and AP U.S. history courses? I have no idea. I suspect maybe some of them will say, no, that's, that's not necessary. Let's not, let's not go there. Let's not pick fights with our local school administrators and, and you know, uh, all that stuff. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what, what, what grows out of this uh, for better or for worse. Okay. Um, Andrew, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. If people want to follow your work online, follow your reporting, uh, but want to see your work at EdWeek, besides going to edweek.com, uh, where can they look? Um, well, they can go to edweek.org, as you said. Um, they can follow me on Twitter, if that's your thing, at Andrew Ujifusa. U-J-I-F-U-S-A is how you spell my last name. Um, I also write for EdWeek's um, vertical called Politics K-12, so you can follow at Politics K-12 as well. Uh, so that's how you can keep up with my work. The Politics K-12 Twitter feed actually is a very informative one. I, it's one of my primary sources for like national ed stuff. And so thanks for your work you do there. Thank you, Nate. I really appreciate it. Right. Well, kind of forever, y'all. Wash your damn hands, get vaccinated, and convict the police that killed Manuel Ellis. Channel 253 is a member-supported podcast network. I'm producer Doug Mackey, and I'm asking you to become a member and show your support. Go to channel253.com slash membership to join. Thank you. Did I get you blinking? I got you blinking. I always... God. No, not you, Nate. <laughs> okay. You're okay. Oh, here we go. I was good for one? Sorry. Yeah. Keep your eyes open, everyone. Nerd Farmer is part of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. Check out our other shows. Interchangeable White Ladies. Give Me the Mic. We Art Tacoma. Move to Tacoma. Taco Man. Flounder's B-Team. Crossing Division. Citizen Tacoma. And What Say You? This is Channel 253.